this evening we come to the second of our studies on the key to the book of um, Haggai. And uh, we will not be able this evening to go back over what we said last week, except just to say that the key to this book is quite clear to those who even read it superficially. Um, it is building, or more correctly, rebuilding. That's the key to the book of Haggai. It is all centered in the rebuilding, the recovery and reconstruction of the temple. And we have said last week and spent quite some time upon it um, that the temple, tabernacle or temple, are in the Old Testament a symbol fulfilled in Christ, but not only in Christ alone, but in those who are joined with him, who by the grace of God are placed in Christ. They have become the dwelling place of God forever. It is a picture of Christ and his body, the church. And as in the book of Haggai, we've discovered that that temple is ruined, its services paralyzed. It is no longer even a symbol of the dwelling place of God. It lies in, uh, in a destroyed state and condition. So we have learnt from that something of what has happened to the church as God conceived it and constituted it on the day of Pentecost. It may be that in, uh, in the universal and eternal and invisible sense it has, not, it has remained unaffected by the terrible advances of the evil one, but the church as God intended it to function on earth, as he intended it to be expressed on this earth, is in ruins. And we have to face the fact. Uh, it, has been, it has become a Babylonian mixture. It has become something so compromised that there is hardly an aspect of its life which is not somehow or other tainted with this world. The world itself has got into the church. And the church has become a worldly and earthly mixture with something that also is heavenly. So the situation that confronts us today as God's people is very much the same kind of situation that faced God's children in the Old Testament, that faced Haggai and those that returned. Now, that's a very, very brief precy indeed of what we um, were speaking about last week. And if anyone wants to, is interested and wants to um, really study the matter, there is the tape recording in full. And you can, if you come afterwards and ask, we will see, arrange some time when you'll be able to hear that recording. It is important because this evening we shall be plunging into the second half of what we've got to say about the key to this prophecy of Haggai, and we shall be taking for granted very much of what we said uh, last week. Now, 
Really, we, um, if I remember rightly, you'll have to remind me here, we ended last week on this note that every one of these messages in this book of Haggai is addressed not to all and sundry, nor to the majority of God's people who are in exile, but to a tiny minority that is called in this book and in Zechariah the remnant of the people of the Lord. In other words, these, all the prophecies, the messages contained in this little book are addressed to those that returned to the land to rebuild the house of God and repopulate and reconstruct the promised land. And so too in our day, it is true that not all God's children will return to God's original purpose and plan for his church. It is true, it, as in the old covenant, that there is only a small remnant in the earth who will, at great sacrifice, really return to God's original plan and pattern for his people at the end of the age. Nevertheless, small though that number may be, it is important that you and I should look to the Lord, that in his grace and by his grace alone we should be numbered amongst such. It is, after all, um, this group that returned were the focal point upon which the whole purpose of God, as it were, um, revolved. Everything was dependent upon that remnant returning to rebuild the house of God and to rebuild Jerusalem. So it is with us. God himself is almighty, and yet in his amazing grace, he is waiting for us, those who are the redeemed of the Lord, not only to see what his purpose is, but in spirit to commit ourselves unreservedly and unconditionally, whatever the sacrifice, to the actual realization of that purpose in our day and time and the bringing nearer of the coming, if not the actual coming of the King. So you see... It is important for us to understand that this little prophet, this little book of Haggai, is addressed to a certain class of people. It's not that they are superior uh, or anything in themselves. As, in fact, the book reveals, they are in themselves most unworthy. Most unworthy. But they have this, that at great sacrifice they have returned from the comfortable security of their homes in exile. Back like the early pilgrim fathers, they have gone back to a land which is desolate and unyielding, a wilderness and a ruin. Nevertheless, not even that is enough. And here we come to the actual key and theme of Haggai. It is not even enough to return it is not enough even to see what God's purpose is and return in spirit. Haggai's real message is this. God wants us to return, but he is not interested in a mere return. 
He is interested in actual building. That is the burden of the, of the prophet Haggai. He wants to see not only a foundation cleared, laid and cleared, but he wants to see the stones made ready. He wants to see the stones built one upon another. He wants to see the whole house, as it were, going up and to its completion. All the different materials prepared and fitted in and so that it might once again be a place where God himself could be manifested and known and heard and understood. Now that is the point of this prophet Haggai. Now if I am correct, that's where we ended last week. It is most interesting to see the way the Lord commands uh, the remnant, these people, to go up into the mountain and bring wood and build. You'll find that in chapter 1, verse 8. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build. And then he says, I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified. Now this is most interesting. For what the Lord is saying is this, he is not interested in their mere return, he wants them actually to get on with the job and get the materials for the actual building. Then he says, I will take pleasure in it. Here were a whole company of people who at great cost had returned, but the Lord says he is inferring here that he is not taking pleasure in it. He is inferring that he is not being glorified. He says, go up into the mountain and bring wood and build the house of the Lord. And then I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified. Now here is a point. Your satisfaction is intimately bound up with his satisfaction. Your glory is intimately bound up with his glory. That is the point. We shall never really be satisfied until God is satisfied. We shall never be glorified till God is glorified. Now the Lord says, this is the point. The point of my satisfaction lies not in a knowledge of my purpose, but in an actual instrumental realization of it. Being instrumentally bound up with the securing and establishing of my purpose. When the house of God is so built, the church is so established, recovered and built up, then says the Lord, I will take pleasure in it. I shall be satisfied and I will be glorified. That, I believe, is very important. The temple of Haggai's day was not uh, of the same proportions or of the same outward significance as that of Solomon's. Uh, you can see that uh, here in chapter 2 and verse 3. Haggai says, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes as nothing? Now, isn't that interesting? How the Lord says to the people, is it not in your eyes as nothing? 
Evidently the people, as they saw the house going up, the ones who remembered the former house, were saying, this is just nothing. Oh, this is miserable compared with the former house. The, the Solomon's temple had such magnificence. It had such proportions. It was so thoroughly significant in every way. And uh, you see, uh, this is the point. God says, I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified. He goes on to say in verse 9 of chapter 2, the latter glory of this house, though smaller, though not of the same outward significance as Solomon's, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace. The point is this, this temple of Haggai's is the building God wants, and that's what matters. Now, you see, it's the same with us today. Many Christians refuse to be builded together with other Christians. They, don't wa they want to be Christians, but they don't want any of the discipline of being linked and uh, built in with other believers. They want to be living stones, but they don't want to be fitted together and built up into the house of the Lord. And you see, sometimes they make the excuse, well, you can't do anything about the church today. It's in such a condition, it's in such a state. If we were to try, how is it possible to do anything? It will never be the same as it was in the days of Pentecost. It will never be the same as it was in the New Testament. We know that. But this is the point. God wants a building. And there is a building uh, work of God's Spirit going on in the world. And it matters very much that you and I should be in it. Of course we know that what God is doing will not, in fact, be of the same outward significance or of the same proportions as what he did at Pentecost. But nevertheless, there is a building work going on. And you and I ought to be in it. Oh, how much we need to really look to the Lord for that. You see, the root of the matter is very simple. It boils down really to this. Whether you and I are prepared to be utterly obedient to the Lord, whether you and I are prepared to be available to him, whether we are prepared in everything to surrender to him. And that is the point. Because, you see, we must first give ourselves to the Lord and then to one another. If we put it the other way around, we get into a mess. If we try to get related to one another and then to the Lord, we get into a mess. First we must give ourselves to the Lord and then to one another. We must first hold fast the head, then we shall find the body. It's no good trying to find the body and then trying to reach the head through the body. Paul in Colossians says, hold fast the head from whom the whole body fitly framed together, and so on and so on. We've got to get right with the head. We've got to learn to keep a clear relationship with the Lord Jesus. When you and I do that, we start to come into a right relationship with one another. It is absolute rubbish to talk about a relationship with the Lord Jesus and be out 
of relationship with brothers and sisters. You can't do it. It's always a ruse when people talk about mm, being happy with the Lord and having lovely times with the Lord and they can be quarrelling with their brothers and sisters, out of gear with their brothers and sisters, um, sort of somehow or other living in the dark in fe as far as fellowship goes with their brothers and sisters. That's not possible. Now it's just here that we have to ask ourselves some questions. Because, you see, this is the burden of Haggai. Really, he's saying, we've not, we've, it's no good you asking yourself, what have I seen? That's important. But that's not really the point. What do I understand of God's purpose? What really is this calling, this vocation with which I am called? No, says Haggai, it's no good you just simply um, asking yourself that kind of question. The question you've got to ask is this. Am I genuinely and wholeheartedly cooperating in this building work of the church? Now that's where Haggai goes to the room. Those people who go, went back to the land felt they'd seen something of the purpose of God. They felt they were in the great move of God's spirit back to the land. Now they were hiding. They were hiding in a lot of genuine, seemingly genuine excuses. Well, they said it's not time. Look at the condition of things. Look how difficult our circumstances are. Look how hard it is to get materials. Look at the condition, as it were, of our own personal circumstances. It can't be the right time to do it. But Haggai comes straight to them and says, this is the point. Your return doesn't mean anything unless you get on with the building. Building is the thing God wants. He doesn't just want people to go back to the promised land. He doesn't just want people to go back uh, and sort of sit around near the temple site, near the foundation of the temple. He wants the actual building to commence and to be got underway. Now, those are the questions you and I have to ask ourselves. Am I, in fact, being built in and up with others? Is there any brother and sister that I'm actually built in with at all? Or am I just a little unit that wanders here and there like a butterfly, tasting this sermon and tasting that sermon, going to this meeting and going to that meeting? No responsibility, no discipline, nothing at all of the grind or the warfare or the conflict or the service of God's house? kind of thing is a ruse of the enemy, a device by which Satan keeps Christians in a state of mental knowledge and no possession of, true, of the true Christian life. Ever growing in knowledge and yet never really coming to a real experience, bedrock and elementary experience, of the law. So Haggai comes to us with this question, it's building that God wants. God's Holy Spirit is, has got a tremendous job on hand. He, he's got the foundation, it's Christ. Now he wants to get living stones onto the foundation and built up so that in the end the, this house of the Lord, this dwelling place of God may be completed and the Lord brought, brought back. 
Where do you and I stand in regard to all that? For only in that building of stone next to stone and upon stone does the Lord take flesh and is he glorified. Where then is the Lord's pleasure in your life? Where is the Lord's pleasure in mine? Where is the Lord's glory in your life? Where is the Lord's glory in mine? Haggai gives us the key to it. We, I don't have to say any more. You can go away and take this little prophet, Haggai, and you, and you can put it up against your own life. And this in turn raises big issues, because you see it's all very practical. How available am I in practical terms to the Lord and his people? How responsible in the work outwardly and inwardly. There can be no building without availability. Everyone's got to be available. Even if it's a rotor that they, conduct, that they had in those days, everyone had to be available at the time they were wanted and to put in the hours that they'd got to put in, you understand? And so on. Everyone had got to have a responsible an outwardly responsible and an inwardly responsible spirit towards this great job of building the house. But it goes deeper. Am I at variance with any brother or sister? Am I walking in the light? Isn't it an interesting thing that the city is transparent like glass? See? What the material that God is producing in you and I has got to be transparent. Now then, what is God producing in you and I? What kind of material is coming out of our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit? Is it all in the shadow? Is, is there, is there some, something that all the time is, is in the dark, is underhand, under the counter? Or am I walking in the light? Have I, have I got an openness of heart and spirit? These things are intensely practical, but they're all bound up with spiritual building. You see, let me ask another question. Can I be subject to others? Building is a big thing. It means that a stone has got to be chosen without regard to itself, put into a place. Other stones have got to be put alongside of it, and it is hemmed in for good. It's part of a fabric, part of a structure. It's got to lay down its own life, to be blended, as it were, with the rest. That's a big cough, but within it lies our own satisfaction and glory, as well as the Lord's. So, you see, all, all, all comes back down to some very, very practical issues. It's lovely to talk about the eternal purpose of God, because we can all be lifted up into the heavenlies and all think about what's coming and how wonderful it is that we've been redeemed, how marvellous the blood of the Lord Jesus is in cleansing us from all our sin, what a marvellous prospect lies ahead of us, and so on and so forth. 
But the point is this. God is not interested in your appreciation or my appreciation of his eternal purpose. He is interested with how much of that purpose is being worked out in our lives. And in practical terms, that just means this. You and I are living stones in the temple of God. God wants to get on with the job of fashioning us and forming us to be built together into a house in which he can live by the Spirit. We're keeping, of course, naturally to the symbolism of this book of Haggai. But it's all there. Then again, Haggai shows us that those who return come under the discipline of the Holy Spirit in a way that the majority in exile know nothing of. The Lord is absolutely painstaking with them in all his dealings. It is so interesting. I mean, you think of all those folk away in exile. They didn't have any of this difficulty. They were prospering. They were advancing. They, were, they, they didn't know anything of famine or blight or drought or difficulty. No, not at all. Evidently, all was well with them. But you see... Those who return come under another kind of discipline. And the Lord is so careful with everything. Look at it for a moment. Take this little book of Haggai. Let's look at it. Everything, personal or corporate, in whatever sphere in life, is related by Haggai to the, to the work of building. Everything. He relates it to the actual work of rebuilding and to the place that the Lord has in that rebuilding. Now, this is very important. If you and I want to put the Lord in his right place, it means you and I have got to take a proper, uh, get into a, a right relationship to what he's doing in this way of building. If you want the Lord to be the heart and the circumference of your life, then you see, building is the order of the day. Now let's look at us. Let's look at this, uh, this book. First of all, he relates blessing to it. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 19. <clears throat> you better, uh, if you want to take a note of these, and then you can look it up and see the context. Chapter 2, verse 19. The Lord says, the last part of the verse, from this day will I bless you. Now, this is the interesting thing. That blessing, <coughs> which covers all kinds of things, is related to the foundation of the Lord's temple. In verse 18, last part of the verse. So, all blessing is related. Now, are you really being blessed? Or do you look at some other Christians, <coughs> I'm afraid this fire is drying me up, um, or do you look at some other Christians and who don't seem to have seen what you've seen and you feel, oh, they seem to be being blessed, so I can't understand it. If we're seeing something, if we're seeing what the Lord wants, why isn't he blessing us? He's not blessing you unless you are actually absolutely and consistently true to what you're in. If you and I have seen something, then a tremendous responsibility rests on our shoulders. And the Lord's discipline is this. No blessing unless we're absolutely consistent. 
So there can be dear old Esther and the others back in the land. They're doing every kind of thing that, that they couldn't do in the promised land. And she's getting a marvellous blessing. And yet here they are in the land. You know, I don't have to explain to all. Esther is getting married to a heathen king. And she's being blessed in it. And Ezra's busy divorcing all the unsaved wives of the people in the land. Two entirely, you seem to be a contradiction, you see. The discipline of the Lord for those who go back. Then again, you see, provision, chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. Therefore, for your sakes, the heavens withhold the dew, the earth withholdeth its fruit, that's provision. I call for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains, upon the grain, or upon the new wine, upon the oil, upon that which the ground bringeth forth, upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labour of their hands. Then again, chapter 2, verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord. Two things. The Lord is simply saying this, if you're rightly related to this building work of my spirit, then all the silver and gold is mine. But if you're not, then everything's withheld. Everything is blighted. There's drought, there's famine, and so on, and so forth. So provision. Do you and I know anything of provision? You see? Lord's so careful on this. Let's go on. We find strength. I often hear people saying that they feel so weary, they have no more strength. And yet, you know, God's word gives such promises to those that wait upon him and for him. He will renew their strength. It says exactly what will happen. Listen to what the Lord says here about strength. Chapter 1, verse 13. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. Here is their strength. As soon as they were obedient to the Lord, and as soon as they put first things first, the Lord says, I'm with you. I'll be your strength. So a little farther on, uh, in, in chapter 2, he says, be strong and work, for I am with you. See? Strength. But it's a terrible thing to have seen something of God's purpose, to have been committed to it, and then to, to contradict the principle <coughs> that is involved, and find that we're in a terrible conflict with no strength. The Lord's not there. See, strength there. But carry on, there's ability, ability to actually get on with the work and build. Chapter 1, verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, a little farther on, and the, and the spirit of Joshua, and a little further on in the verse, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work. That's ability. People say again and again, oh dear, they've got something of the Lord, they have a gift from the Lord, and yet somehow they feel they can't, they can't do anything. They don't seem to have the ability to actually function as they ought. And yet every one of us is gifted somehow by the Holy Spirit, and we ought all to be actually contributing and functioning uh, in the house of the Lord. Now what is wrong? There is no ability if we're not rightly related to the place of the, to, to the Lord in, this, in his house. Then again increase, chapter 2, verse 16. <clears throat> 
through all that time, when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten, and when one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty vessels, there were but twenty. So really what Haggai is saying is that there is no increase if we're not rightly related to this question of the building of God's house. This little prophet, has it's amazing how he relates everything to building. Everything. Then again, if you want to look at peace, the question of peace. Chapter 2, verse 9, in this place will I give peace. And then satisfaction, chapter 1, verse 6. This is a very amusing little verse, I think, when you look at it carefully. You've sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but you have not got enough. Ye drink, but you're not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put, it, put into a bag with holes. What does that mean? Dissatisfaction, that's all. In other words, here you are in, in, in spirit. You've seen what the purpose of the Lord is and, and you've, you're with others who've seen it and yet somehow you're basically dissatisfied. Everything you do doesn't reward you. There seems to be nothing satisfying. Everything somehow you expect to, to get a return, you don't. You drink and yet you, you're not so satisfied. You eat and you're not satisfied. You clothe yourself and you're still really not really warm. You get wages and somehow they all drain away. Dissatisfaction. Satisfaction, you see, even that is linked with this question of the Lord's place in his house. And then authority, chapter 2, verse 23. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, Will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee. It's very, very interesting that this man, Zerubbabel, is, is given an authority from the Lord because he has been faithful in this work of rebuilding. So that is linked to it. And, of course, finally, we find glories, as always. Chapter 2, verse 7 and the last part of the verse, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. Now glory is that indescribable something that is once you've been touched with it, you're never satisfied until you're touched again. It is really the presence of the Lord in the most conscious and manifested way. And the Lord's saying here, that you and I who are made for glory, who because of sin fell short of the glory of God, can only really come to it by being built in together with others. That city which John sees at the end has the glory of God. It's a city. All has been molded and melted and fused into one. Now, why were the remnant who had been so faithful to the Lord having such a hard time? They were experiencing bl the blighting of their crops. They were experiencing famine. They were experiencing drought. They were experiencing limitation. They were experiencing weariness of heart and spirit in every way. Why? Because they'd been faithful to the Lord. Why weren't the people in exile experiencing all this? This is the point. Because they were denying the very principle of their spiritual standing and being. 
which was the dwelling place of God. So if you note chapter 1, verse 4, just note these words. This house lieth waste. Verse 5, now therefore. This house lieth waste, therefore. Look at verse 9. This house lieth, my house lieth, that lieth waste. Verse 10, therefore. You see, the two things are linked together. Because God's church lies in ruins, therefore. In other words, because there is no actual building work going on, therefore you are experiencing blight and famine and drought and limitation, and dissatisfaction, and weariness. Because you're coming under the hand of God's discipline. So, really, it's a very, very solemn uh, message that Haggai brings to us. To have seen something of God's purpose is, in fact, to bring us into a very big responsibility over its actual realisation. Now, you see, we can do just this. We can hide in an abstract, personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, which is wholly invisible to both man and beast, and yet practically deny the body of the Lord. Now, I am not saying that we ought not to have an actual, actual personal relationship with the Lord. We must. That's absolutely necessary. It's the first and elementary necessity in this building, that you and I should have a real personal walk and life with the Lord. But you know, multitudes of Christians are hiding in a kind of ethereal, abstract, personal relationship with the Lord, which isn't in fact a relationship at all. They never talk to him, they never read his word, they never go to him, they never have communion with him. Now and again when they're in trouble, yes, or when there's a little bit of, um, they've been perhaps emotionally moved in some way or another, they, they sort of start talking to the Lord. But you see, they hide in that relationship and deny the body of the Lord. You can't do it. You just cannot do it. The result is always the same. It is, this, it is exactly what they experienced in Haggai's day. If you and I have seen and understood God's purpose and are outwardly committed to it with others, and yet not truly so in practice, then we reap a weary, blighted, restless experience. That is our lot. The point is this. The Lord does not merely dislike lukewarmness. He hates it. He hates it. Because it's hypocrisy. He would rather have a person stone cold or boiling hot. But lukewarmness is anathema to the Lord. So if you read Revelation 3 and verse 15, the Lord says, I would rather that you are either cold or hot, but because thou art lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Hates the thing. This kind of spineless, jelly-livered, 
ex-Christian uh, life, which is neither this nor that. It never has any responsibility about it. It never has any character about it. It never really contributes anything. It's always neither this nor that. It's always wise enough to keep out of, out of actual backsliding, but it's never zealous enough to really get into God's work. It's always on the fringe, because it's always got lots of excuses. But you see, it's the lukewarmness which the Lord hates. Now, lukewarmness, you can either get that by once being hot and cooling off, or you can get it by the addition of a lot of cold water. But however it comes, lukewarmness is a curse, and the Lord hates it. If you and I were to see that the Lord would either rather have us absolutely cold or absolutely hot, it would change our attitude to a lot of things. But this awful in-between thing is the thing the Lord hates. Now, you see, these people were once boiling hot for the Lord. They left Babylon. They left their secure homes. They left their prospering businesses. They left their, their positions of influence and so on and comfort in Babylon. They went back. They were boiling hot for the Lord, absolutely 100% committed. They went back to the land. When they got back in that first return in 536, they laid the foundation. They set up the altar. They cleared the foundation, and they kept the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time of great rejoicing. Then the difficulties began. Then somehow the hard circumstances began to influence them. Then the opposition and antagonism of surrounding forces began to have their part in the battle. And gradually, somehow, they've become lukewarm. And their relationship with the Lord has been submerged. They've still got a relationship with one another, but it's all... They've lost their first love. <coughs> and uh, you see, now there's a lukewarmness. They've still, they're, they're not saying it's wrong to build the house of the Lord. Mark it. They're not saying the Lord shouldn't have a dwelling place. Mark it. Like many Christians who wouldn't be foolish enough to say that today. But what they say is this kind of thing. It's not the time. It, 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 this isn't the time to do it. See? It's not God's time. We don't have to be 100% at present. We can uh, employ our energy in other ways still. In this book, we find four underlying causes for despondency and discouragement, and they are most revealing. They're found in each one of the four messages. The first we find in the first message in the first chapter, and it is found in verse 2 of chapter 1. This people say it's not the time for us uh, to come, the time for the Lord's house to be built. Now, you know, this is a great cause of despondency. <clears throat> It's a cause of despondency when you keep on hearing people saying, oh, it's not the right time. Obviously not the right time. I mean, look at conditions. Just look what's happening. It's not the right time yet. And it's somehow you become discouraged. You become despondent. 
especially when you see people spending all that energy and everything on other things. That's one cause. And then you'll find another cause in verse 3 of chapter 2. You see, who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes as nothing? Now, that's the cause, a uh, second cause of despondency and discouragement. Those people are always saying, well, I mean, look what, look at it. Look at the building that's going on. It's just nothing. It's nothing. How can you possibly ever reproduce anything like they had at the beginning of the New Testament? It's impossible. So you become despondent and discouraged. The, whatever you do, you couldn't possibly recapture the glory of the early church. Then again, there's another cause for discouragement in the last part, part of chapter 2, or the middle part, from verse 10 to verse 19. And it is this. How can it be the Lord's will to rebuild when the way is so hard and the blessing is so slow in coming? Go away and read that, and you'll find that's just what they were saying. How can it be the Lord's will to rebuild when the way is so utterly hard? They don't have it hard in such and such a place or such and such a company or such and such an organization. They don't seem to understand what the purpose of God is, but they don't have this hardness, and they don't have such a tough uphill battle. Can't be right. So you get despondent. Well, you think to yourself, it's only natural. It can't be right, can it? Look, they said here, we've laid the foundation of the Lord's house, and still nothing seems to have happened. Now we've done what Haggai's told us to do, and still we're having a lot of difficulty, and so on. And lastly, and this I think is the most telling of all, in the last few verses, from verse 20 to 23, why did the Lord give this word of comfort to Zerubbabel? I think it is true what some scholars believe, that it was because he had a great battle over whether he was not jeopardizing his career, his position, and his, and his family. You see, he was only governor by the goodness of the Persian government. Now, it must, it must have been that the enemy came to Zerubbabel and said, Zerubbabel, if you throw your lot in with this rebuilding of the house of God and it gets to the ears of the Persian government, you will be finished. Your, 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 your line, your family, your position, your work, everything will be jeopardized. Now, Zerubbabel, don't be silly. Wait for, to see which way the wind is blowing. Wait to see, you know, um, whether it'll be all right, you see. That's another cause for, for despondency, because the enemy comes and says, Look here, if you wholly devote yourself to the rebuilding of God's house... Your family will suffer, your business will suffer, and your career will suffer, your position will suffer. Every single aspect of your life will suffer. The point is this, you can build your own house, you can panel it and everything else, but the end will be this, you'll have no satisfaction and you'll only be more weary than you ever were before you started.
The Lord's really simply saying this. Everything is related to my dwelling place. If you are committed to my purpose, if you've seen something of what it means, then everything's related. Let's go on a little further. You see, it's in the light of all this that Haggai uses the word consider five times. It's one of his key words. He tells us to consider. And in actual fact, um, this word consider could be translated, set your heart upon your ways. It is in my mar the margin of my version. Set your heart upon your ways. In other words, reflect deeply and thoroughly on your ways. Now, you know, if in all this conflict and activity that we're in, we were to do a little bit more reflection and considering, we would not only be saved from an awful lot of mistake, but we would also come to understand what the divine objective and plan is more clearly. It is, it is because you and I do not heed what the prophet Haggai says about considering your ways. We just go blindly on. We've got our little sort of ideas, our conceptions. It's not time for the Lord's house to be built, we say. So we go on and on and on and on. We don't consider, we don't stop, we don't reflect. So Haggai says, look here, take a little bit of time off. Sit down and reflect. Now he says, reflect. You say this, and yet you do that. And look at the result. So he says, now just wait. <clears throat> reflect again, will you? Go up into the mountain, get some wood, and build the house, and I will take pleasure, and I will be glorified. Because my house lies waste, for your sake, I did this, I did that, I did the other, I did the other, I did the other. It all begins to fall into place. Oh, I expect the people in Haggai's day began to say, Oh, now we understand. We see it all so clear. Why didn't we see it before? So in the next few verses, we're told they start to be obedient. They listen to God's word, they're obedient to God's word, and, they, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them, and they start to get on with the work. Then a bit later, they're in trouble again. They've laid the foundation, they've, they've cleared it, and they're getting on with the work, and somehow other things are not going as they expect. And I suppose all the old moments have started again. They can't be right, it can't be right, it can't be. And so now they're, they're wondering once more, you see. And now again Haggai comes to him, he says, just wait. And he takes an illustration from the law, from Leviticus. Uh, and... Uh, he begins to, uh, from this, he, he draws, he makes an illustration. And he says, now then, reflect. And then he goes on again, reflect. Three times, he says, reflect. So, you see, if you and I were only to consider, if you and I were to sit down and just think a little, What's wrong? Why doesn't the Lord bless me? Why doesn't he provide? Why doesn't he give the increase? Why don't I know his strength? Why isn't his ability uh, expressed in my life? What's wrong? Why haven't I got the peace I should have? And so on and so forth. You might begin to come to a conclusion. 
that one or two of the um, premises upon which you are building, upon which somehow or other you are, you are basing everything, are wrong. And the effect is what we've been talking about. And then another important point I think we ought to make is the place that Haggai gives to God's word. He mentions it in one way or another 30 times in 38 verses, so much so that he's been called the prophet of repetition. Some people find his style terribly dull and prosaic because he repeats himself again and again and again. It's a somewhat remarkable repetitiveness, and I think we've got to take account of it as it's in God's word. It seems that in the battle at the end, God's word and our attitude to it is all important. It's fundamental in the work of recovery. Now, you see, in many ways, God's word is the only basis on which we can expect him to work. And at the end of this age, as at the end of the Old Testament age, the battle grows so, so furious, and the enemy seems so busy, that unless you and I are have got the right attitude to God's word and have our feet well and truly upon it, we shall never get through. You see, if you look at um, chapter 1, verse 12 to verse 15, you find it's the word of God which has become the basis for the people's uh, uh, getting on with the job. They are obedient. It says uh, in the middle of verse 12, then the people, with all... Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, with all the women of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. Then again in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, listen to this. Last part. Be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt. Now, in other words, the Lord is reminding them, my word, past and present, is absolutely essential in this work of recovery. Now, there are three things I think we ought to note about God's word in this prophet. The first is faith in God's word. Now, I don't know whether you're finding it difficult this evening but you know this comes right to the root of a lot of the backsliding and, um, well, I don't know how to put it, frustration in most of the lives in this room. There must be no evil heart of unbelief lurking in any one of us. If you read Hebrews 3, verse 12, you will see that it is because of an evil heart of unbelief that the people did not go over and possess the land. And the writer to the Hebrews of the Hebrew letter says, Look here, if there's an evil heart of unbelief in you or me, then it'll stop us from going over to inherit. 
Now, this is a tremendous thing because this word, there are two words used in Greek for evil. One means uh, the evil of character, the character of evil, and the other means the influence of evil. And this is the second. It's, it, it's, the idea is that this heart that, that can influence everything, it can paralyze. It comes, the root, its root is pain, sorrow, or labor. And the idea is it's the kind of evil that produces pain and sorrow and labor. An evil heart of unbelief. A heart of evil, of unbelief, you see. It's that kind of thing. Instead of bringing joy and peace and glory, it brings only just weariness and impoverishment and paralysis. An evil heart of unbelief. It always paralyzes. Why can't you function as you ought? Why are you not in possession of, of the Christian life as you read it here in the New Testament? Because somewhere in us there lurks an evil heart of unbelief that says, it's all right for so-and-so, but it's no good for me. <coughs> God can do it in Corrie ten Boom, but he can't do it in me. God can do it in Jeffrey Bull, but he couldn't do it in you or me. See? Somehow or other, it's always like that. It's an evil heart of unbelief that paralyzes. And do you know what it does? It brings us into a compromised position where we neither believe nor yet do not believe. Disbelieve. You understand? You see, it brings us into a compromised position where we believe and we don't believe. In other words, we believe the Lord is a mighty saviour and yet somehow or other we don't believe so much. We believe the Lord is a tremendous keeper, but somehow that we don't believe he's a tremendous keeper. We believe that he is a finished work, and yet somehow or other we're always trying to add to it, expect something more to be done to it. You see? We believe that the cross is the heart of everything, and yet somehow or other we don't believe it can affect us. We believe that the Holy Spirit has been given on the day of Pentecost, and yet somehow or other we believe that we haven't really got him. And so on and so forth. It's an evil heart of unbelief. And you know, in this recovery work, there must be implicit faith in God's word. Nothing else will ever get us through. There's so much evidence to the contrary that unless you and I have got that faith which endures of seeing him who is invisible, there's no hope for us at all. And then another thing about um, the word of God in the book of Haggai is not only that the, these folk believed in God's word and acted, but they were sensitive to God's word. You see? They were sensitive to it. And I sometimes wonder just how we m lose a lot because we ignore the speaking of God's Holy Spirit. How sensitive you and I ought to be to the Lord. Because, you know, it is with the gravest consequences that you and I overlook the speaking of God. If God ever says anything, you and I must listen. That's why the Lord says to this man, when I look to he, to, to the one that trembleth at my word. Sensitivity 
over the word of God. Some people are so brash and so clumsy in their handling of the word of God. And because of that, we can spiritually lose out. These people, evidently, I mean, look at all the excuses they had. They seem to have got themselves into an absolutely cast iron mould. And yet somehow there was some sensitivity. And when that word of God came, they immediately went down before it. The whole crowd, you see. And then again, there has to be obedience to God's word. And again, we must note, we must be doers of God's word. The Lord doesn't want mere understanding, but practical obedience in it. I think that we will stop there, but you see how important, important it is. Otherwise, if there is not obedience to God's word, there is knowledge, but no building. Now, in the situation that faces us today, we have a, a, a two or three different classes of Christian. We have the Christian who is truly saved, but has no idea of what God's eternal purpose is. And therefore quite happy to live in a state, really, of spiritual ignorance. They are saved, thank God for that. They are witnessing, thank God for that. And in their way, often are so devoted, utterly devoted to the Lord. There may be many of us here this evening in that case. But we have no idea of what is God's purpose. Then you have another class of Christian who understands God's purpose and in some measure is committed to it. They understand it. But you see, there's no realisation of it. And in a sense, those people become the greatest stumbling block of all. Because they are, they are enlarged up here to a degree. They question everything. Is it spiritual? Is it not spiritual? Is it of the flesh? Is it not of the flesh? Is it of God? Is it not of God? Everything comes under the, the hammer of their mind. You see. They've got a knowledge. It's puffed them up. It's inflated them. They understand the scriptures. They can bring everything under minute investigation and inspection. And yet, and this is the point, they are like spiritual old maids. You see, they can spend their time investigating and criticizing and putting up because they're not getting on with the work. All that God would give us to be people like those of Haggai's day who suddenly understood the point and got on with the work. Because it's not what we understand here. It's the amount that is actually being done in us and through us that matters to God. He doesn't want us to understand what his purpose is, what his great 
plan is for, world, for the rest of world history, understand all the intricacies of the second coming of the Lord Jesus, be able to discuss it in detail, understand his whole conception in the church and its future glory and service and so on and so forth, and yet not be, in fact, a living stone being built with other stones. No, the Lord wants us to, in fact, be those in his hand who, as we see, are obedient to what we see, so that what we see becomes our experience all the time. The Holy Spirit is turning it into experience, so that each new step, each fresh revelation, becomes an actual procession in experience of something more of the law. Now shall we bow together in prayer. Now, dear Lord Jesus, we do just lift up our hearts to thee. We thank thee together that we have been able to study this word of thine. And we pray now, Lord, that thou write it upon our hearts. Oh, dear Lord, that somehow or other what thou art seeking to get over to us might in fact get to us and might be written indelibly in our lives. Lord, we would ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus.